0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners and welcome back to another great episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch and with me is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello, hello. Hello. Tonight, we get the privilege of talking about Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, courtesy of our Facebook group voting in this week's Director Battlemon. We should get like an audio clip or something, like every time we announce that, it'd be kind of fun.
1: I would get way obsessed with playing it over and over like I do with Trailer Talk. I want to play the, <laughs> I love the Trailer Talk audio for FF Plus so much that I just want to play it even when we're not talking about trailers.
0: It's like a great little, like, you get a text message from me. It's like, trailer talk. Oh, it could be your text tone. <sighs> it could be.
1: Oh, I'm totally doing that when we get done.
0: <laughs> well, before we get started and before you go berserk with crazy audio, uh, let's check out how we did on our predictions for this quadrant of the competition. To remind you listeners, uh, we made picks for how we thought the voting would go. We get one point for a right answer, keeping it pretty simple. And whoever has the most points at the end of the month will buy the loser a pop figure.
1: And I am currently winning, which is the way I like it. I am up (laughs) 13 to 10, but I have about zero confidence going into tonight's (laughs) bracket that we're going to be talking about here. This did not go my way, Patrick. Uh, I'm going to recap the first round of matchups. Actually, I'll just recap kind of the entire matchup, I think is what we did last time. And then we'll talk about what we got right, what we got wrong. So... In the first round, we had Inglorious Bastards versus Reservoir Dogs, with Reservoir Dogs coming out victorious. We had Pulp Fiction beating Django Unchained. We had Ferris Bueller's Day Off beating Pretty in Pink. We had The Breakfast Club beating Weird Science. The Grand Budapest Hotel, obviously, won over Moonrise Kingdom. Fantastic Mr. Fox over Isle of Dogs. Boyhood over A Scanner Darkly and Everybody Wants Some over Last Flag Flying. The next round ended up being Pulp Fiction over Reservoir Dogs, The Breakfast Club over Ferris Bueller's Day Off in a very, 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 very heated matchup, The Grand Budapest Hotel over Fantastic Mr. Fox, and Boyhood over Everybody Wants Some. After that, it was The Breakfast Club taking out Pulp Fiction. No, it wasn't. I actually don't know what the correct answers are, because now I'm reading mine, as I just realized. I just realized I'm reading my bracket and not the right answers. I have no idea. So, past the first round, you can just ignore everything I said. Anyway, the point is, that ultimately, (laughs) The Breakfast Club is not the movie that won. It's the movie that I wanted to win and the movie I picked. Why do I keep talking about it? The Grand Budapest Hotel is the movie that won this bracket i did really bad patrick basically okay listen i got one two three four five six seven eight is that right no yes eight total six of those in the first round and i kept mentioning the breakfast club because that was my pick and it got knocked out pretty early actually (laughs) and now that i am thinking remembering i think it might have lost the ferris bueller's day off actually i can't remember dude this was like two weeks ago the point is i got eight listeners you picked Grand Budapest Hotel for the
0: winner, and that's where we are now. What did you okay. do? Well, I I got ten out of fifteen, so I have gained two points I, on you. You gained, a, yeah.
1: I that's exactly what I told you. I knew that so, you were going to be up on me this one.
0: So it's now thirteen to twelve. No, 15, well, it, I'm behind one, so it would have been twenty-one what? to twenty. There we go. All right, yeah. and I think, I think we're closer this year than we were last year. Like, it was starting to get to be a landslide after the, the second quadrant, and I was like, well, I'm just here for the for the popcorn and cookies. Yeah, right I think I'd point. already beaten you, basically, at this point. <laughs> so I was, like, picking out a pop figure. And you
1: weren't quite see. mathematically eliminated, but it was getting close to that point. Yeah. Uh, but so. yeah, so 21 to 20 overall, I'm in the lead. I think that the way the voting has gone in the third week, which we'll talk about next week, uh, will be very close again. I think it'll keep us tight and it's going to be interesting all the way up until the end. So it it was fun. These votes are a really good time and we definitely would encourage you to come be a part of the Facebook group and participate. There's a lot of lobbying, not not lobby boying, but lobbying that goes on (laughs) in each of the threads for the voting when the picks get close uh, and just watching our listeners go at it with gift wars and begging each other to Swift, switch their votes is a lot of fun um we also want to announce real quick before we move on that the august donor pick has been chosen by our amazing patrons and it was out of classic movies this year the options were to kill a mockingbird the wizard of oz network the graduate and i am blanking on one.
0: Oh, it's one i haven't seen um i don't remember now but it didn't win, obviously. Since it
1: didn't win, but what was it? Ah, uh, I'm I'm blanking as well. This is totally like unprepared week. But yeah, <laughs> I guess uh, the my kids are here, listeners. All right, listen, I'm on vacation. I literally just started my vacation for the next week and a half. My dad's coming to visit, and that's where my head's at. So that's why I'm not quite as organized as I usually am. But again, what's the ultimate end goal here is that the Wizard of Oz is what won and so we will be excited to take our trip down the yellow brick road together at the end of August and we're also going to have a bonus conversation uh, for our patrons on a 10-year retrospective so we're going to talk about the movies of 2009 and which ones were our favorites what has held up what hasn't just what that year in film looks like to us now a decade later
0: fantastic aaron and with that being said we are now in to spoiler country and what a good country it is from here on out we'll be talking about all the ins and outs of Wes anderson's the grand budapest hotel so you have been warned it's not very old but old enough that you should be a proper moviegoer and get a chance to see it because it's a lot of fun all right as we always do we'll kick off with one word takeaways i'll go ahead and get us started this was difficult for me to actually come up with a word because it was an interesting movie to watch, but I will say it's equally as much an interesting film to look at. And the, the word that came to mind for me was panache. Very, I know it's such a goof. It's such a famous, like such a fancy pants word, but this is like a fancy pants movie. Uh, lots of color, lots of, you know, sophistication, and there's a lot about it that feels a, a bit unconventional with the way that the the story is being told but there aren't a lot of movies that you look at the cinematography alone and you say man that's like a supporting character right there i think that there are few out there the revenant is one of those where you are just kind of in awe of how the filmmaker puts something together on the screen how they use the the uh the different types of format and the way in which things are placed. And then the story itself sort of becomes an intricate part of that. Most of the time you get a great story and everything about it, the way it's shot supports that story. This does that, but I think it takes an equal kind of stance when it comes to its importance to not only Grand Budapest, but most of Wes Anderson's filmography in general. So panache, my fancy word of the night panache.
1: I love it. I think it was a perfect fit for this movie and for this story and it's sort of ties into kind of what I was going to get at with mine and my one word takeaway was artistry when I revisited this film for the first time in early 2018 it was part of my watching my way through Anderson's entire filmography last year I wrote the following review on Letterboxd I said this is probably the most Wes Anderson movie that he's ever made it's a culmination of whimsical storytelling, symmetrical filmmaking style, and cinematic detail. One of the smallest moments, which is Anderson's use of sound, exemplifies what I love so much about his movies. As a cable car sways back and forth, slowly coming to a stop, its squeaks are perfectly timed in beat to the background music. That level of detail impresses me so much. So for all its emotional resonance that this film has in the stories of Gustav and Zero, Uh, the allusions to real life wars and events from the past, and then just the pure fun of the mystery and the adventure that this eclectic cast of characters go on. I think it's the artistry in like literally every single frame, every note, every line of dialogue, all of the design and so forth that makes watching this one an incredible treat to me. I just soak it in, Patrick, and I smile the entire time I'm watching it. It's impossible not to. And what's crazy is that I think that I could do that, watch it and enjoy it, and just kind of live in it without having any idea what actually is happening at all. It honestly doesn't matter as far as, like, my enjoy- I can enjoy the film without knowing the story. And that's how immersive his world of Zabrowski Is for me, it's just, it's a cinematic
0: sensory pleasure. It's 100% art. I agree. And you could, you might be able to argue the fact that you, it's kind of to a fault that he does this in terms of his style. And I thought the conversation would get kicked off pretty nicely with a question that I, I had. This is the first time we're covering a Wes Anderson movie and Anytime someone talks about Wes Anderson, they don't talk about his storytelling first. They talk about his style. And listeners, if you're not familiar with Wes Anderson's style, which, I mean, it's, it's easy to, to not be, it is very simplistic. It's very symmetrical. He frames a lot of things in symmetry. You have an equal balance of stuff on the left with stuff on the right. You could actually divide the frame down the middle, and you have a lot of uh, just sim- symmetry in his shots. You also have a lot of tracking, lateral tracking shots that is, um, when done well, is pretty intriguing. He does it probably to the extent that Michael Bay does his parallax shots. He does it quite a bit. And the color palette is usually very bright. The font that he uses is very kind of whimsical, but also kind of, kind of, um, not famous, but kind of fancy at times. And he just has this way of making all of his movies feel not childlike, but almost very classic, very, uh, a fancy would be the word that I, that I keep coming back to. And it's a very specific style. And you sent me and posted in the Facebook group this really great edited video of what the shining would look like if done in the Wes Anderson style being called the, the overlook hotel as opposed to the grand Budapest hotel and the way it's actually edited together with his music, with all those character traits makes it feel like a different movie. And Philip heard one of our listeners has even commented. He said, I would love to see Wes Anderson style put in all types of genres. So clearly like Quentin Tarantino, his style has kind of evolved over his storytelling. We forget about the stories that are told and we're really more interested in how is the Wes Anderson style going to apply to this story, whether it's Grand Budapest or whether it's Bottle Rocket or whether it's the Royal Tenenbaums. You almost expect it. You expect those elements to exist inside these stories. And it got me asking the question, How does that contribute to your overall experience of a movie like this or any of his movies as far as like the tone and what you get from it?
1: Well, uh, probably my one more takeaway gives away largely how I feel about that because clearly I resonate well with his style. It speaks to me. It is such an imaginative way of storytelling. It is unique that in a way that we don't see often, in movies these days now there's plenty of unique stories being told in cinema i think sometimes we can get into the facebook group discussions or talks with friends and be like oh it's all blockbusters there's no new stories being told anymore there are plenty of indie stories being told but there's not many telling stories like as original and completely unique when you said fancy i actually think of his style more as fanciful in a lot of ways Because of that imagination that goes into the worlds he creates, the characters that inhabit his worlds, the way that they carry themselves, their backgrounds, the way that they speak. It's always going into his stories is like opening a book and having no idea what kind of world you're going to be in. And we probably take that for granted these days because there's so much that is similar in the movies that we watch because audiences pay for that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Marvel movies feeling the same because they're all part of the series, but blockbusters have a formula to them that we tend to enjoy. And Anderson has a formula too, but there's a uniqueness within that formula. And the formula is, like you said, I think it's his style. And I think that he really goes for a theatricality in the performances that are given and the unique way he integrates audio, different styles of sound, and his stop motion animation, even the way that it kind of plays a role in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Some of the shots will cut and you'll see just really brief moments of stop motion animation. The scaling of the mountain and then coming back down with the skis is one of those scenes where those pop in there and it's just it's out of nowhere like it's seemingly like what is going on right it it is shocking and surprising but in a way that feels natural he's just got a unique ability to transport us into his imagination and i don't think that the majority of directors have that
0: I would agree. I think that what he does is he challenges us as an audience to make sure that we're paying attention because as you mentioned, when you have a formulaic type of telling, typically the first thing is, oh, I know what the twist is going to be. Oh, that guy's probably the bad guy. Oh, I see how this is set up and that there is a level of comfort to that when my wife and I talk about the Hallmark formula that she loves watching Hallmark movies and I ask her, why is this not being sarcastic at all? I really do. I say, what is it about the Hallmark movie that you like? And she goes, it's predictability. I love knowing that I can follow the story, knowing that at the, even at the beginning of the movie, here's our heroine who is going to get hooked up with this guy later on. There's going to be some kind of miscommunication. But at the end of the day, they're going to get together and they're going to kiss once and live happily ever after. She's all about the journey. And she likes the way the journey is changed here and there. Even though the formula is the same, the steps to the end are the same. The way in which those steps are done, maybe in and out of sequence or done using different characters or different circumstances, maybe with snow, maybe with leaves, maybe with pumpkins, maybe with trees, whatever it is, she enjoys that. And I'm on that journey with her during the holidays, you know, as I can speak just unequivocally. I like the the Christmas Marvel, but Marvel, (laughs) the Christmas Hallmark movies. I love uh, watching those with her. But when it comes to Wes Anderson's style, that should be expected as well. I don't think there's anybody out there that would say, hey, I'd love to see Wes Anderson do a Quentin Tarantino movie in Quentin Tarantino style or to approach a movie like Chris Nolan does using and and abusing and misinterpreting time travel and and, and manipulating that. No, people want to see what Wes Anderson does because of his particular way in which he approaches his stories what i think is interesting particularly about grand budapest and this exists in his other movies as well is those quick cuts that you talk about he has somebody narrating and then we cut to one shot another shot a third shot and by the time you get to the fourth shot you're like wait wait wait. What, what 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 happened in that third shot that was something kind of shocking or that was something that was out of place he asks us to pay attention because I'm going to show you something or I'm going to tell you something that you might miss. But when you go back and remember it, you're going to be like, Oh, okay. Where I think this can be really interesting. You could call it detrimental. You can call it maybe challenging as a filmmaker is when you get into more quote unquote serious scenes. So there's a scene with Jeff Goldblum's character, Deputy Kovacs, when he gets his fingers cut off and here's Joplin in the background. But What would be in a horror genre or a dramatic movie, a more suspenseful movie, you'd have a lot more suspenseful music. You'd have close-up shots of bloody hands. That scene would carry a lot more emotional weight or a lot more visceral weight. In this, it's played for laughs. In fact, when you see the door close, there's not even any kind of like like softening. It just goes clip as if the door is completely like made of a blade. And those fingers just come off. And the next thing you see is a closeup of the fingers and there's Joplin just picking them up, but there's nothing played for any kind of suspense or seriousness. It's all kind of like, this is just the world that you live in. This is just part of my world. And I think that's what Wes Anderson does really well. Is he says, everything about my stories is normal. Nothing should feel out of place. And because of that, a lot of things should feel out of place. And so it challenges us from an audience standpoint to say, he's normalized this. He's normalized what would be something that could be shocking or could be lewd or could be just completely disrespectful. And he's made it just a part of the story, but in a way that doesn't call attention to itself. Because after that scene, I think there's only one more time we see those fingers come out, but that's it. Even uh, Kovacs' cat, you know, we see it, dead on the oh, ground. And then, I
1: know, bring I'm up sorry. That's such a
0: sad... My kids... My kids were... <laughs> were just watching
1: along. They're just watching along. And all of a sudden, it's like...
2: Oh, my gosh! And they just... Oh!
1: And then it cuts to the scene of it, like, showing the cat from above. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're just, like, so then, angry It's so sad. But the
0: next... Yeah, but the next time you see it is in a bag. In a bag. And a, he's in, carrying... in a red spot. And that's all he's doing is carrying it around. So there's this... Even... If they're supposed, to, there's, even when there's supposed to be tension or supposed to be anger, not one time did I feel a sense of remorse necessarily or a sense of anger or anything outside of this whimsical quirkiness. Like, oh, okay. How am I supposed to feel about that? Yeah. Because, because it's supplanted with that, that score that's like, do, 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 do. and so you really don't know what you're supposed to feel in those moments.
1: The score is amazing. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a m- mystery. It is a mystery film for most of it. He, they are trying to figure out who killed this woman or how to get away from these thugs that are chasing him in order to try and kill them. And he's breaking out of prison. I mean, you look at like the actual material that is being covered. It's all set on the backdrop of essentially a transition period seemingly between like World War One and World War Two. There's you know, issues with – refugees and immigrants going on like there's heavy heavy material and it's all in that whimsical fanciful style because you're not watching it through the perspective that we typically take when we deal with these topics we're watching it through the eyes of gustav essentially who is a person who cares about one thing and one thing only and that's making sure that his job is done and that the grand budapest hotel is taken care of and so i think that's what he does is he gives us a look into his movies that take us in these places through eyes of characters that we just aren't used to seeing. And clearly there is something more than just special about it for us as audiences. There's something special about it for artists. They recognize what Wes Anderson is doing in film and they want to be a part of it because this is a great example. There are so many actors in this film that star in their own movies that are the draw in the movies that they are in but in this movie they play bit parts and they all want to come back and they Wes Anderson is one of those guys you and I have talked about this before how there's certain directors that just they get people back Nolan Tarantino actors and actresses want to be a part of everything that those directors do and Anderson's not different than that you know you expect to see Bill Murray show up sometime He's got to come because he loves and cherishes what anderson's doing in film and so to me that's that's a sign of validation in what we see as an audience that if if the artists themselves can recognize that high of artistry in the craft and want to be part
0: of that world
1: it says a whole whole lot about what he's doing
0: yeah and i mean obviously wes anderson's not the only game in town but he's the only game in town that's doing what he's doing and You can probably say that about a couple of different directors, but he seems to stand out as a director among directors who says, this is what you're going to get in every one of my movies. And it's also going to be something that is going to be given long-term appeal. Like you look back as far as 2009, when his first movies came out, nothing has deviated from, from that way in which he films things. He looks at it from an artist's point of view. This is not just about shooting for narration. It's shooting for art. At any one of those points, you know you could probably screen cap a scene and put that as your desktop wallpaper. Or you could pause it and look around and see all the details of things happening in the background, not just people, but the way in which he is so meticulous with the actual sets that – I think someone's called it a a moving diorama – because of the way in which he just builds these sets in order to use them for two or three different shots. I mean, I would love to go to the set of the Grand Budapest that in some cases is probably a miniature.
1: I was going to say, There's, you could probably hold it in your hands if you're going to it.
0: <laughs> that's true. But again, he crafts, like when he does those lateral tracking shots, there are at least two big giant rooms that he goes back and forth. And there are lots of things in those two rooms that are very purposeful in the way in which he sets them up. So adding that visual thing allows him to be able to say, my stories don't have to be compelling. They don't have to have deep, meaningful things. We talked about this a little bit in Hobbs and Shaw, about the value of popcorn theater, popcorn movies. You could probably classify this as probably a simple popcorn movie because there's not a lot going on, even though there's a lot going on. But you're right, the the story itself is pretty... Pretty simple, it's a mystery and it's escape, things that have been done time and time again. But as our friend James Harleman says, new ideas don't exist, they're just refreshed. And I think that's where Wes Anderson shines. He says, you know what, let's create a movie about this but let's use dogs. Oh, you know what, and let's not use people, let's actually do stop motion animation. And so that creativity that goes along behind that of having simple stories, where you're exaggerating or playing more conceptual ideas with the sets and with the, the actual scenes, I think adds that flavor that always feels new and refreshing, which I think is why one of the many reasons why his, his movies have not gotten tired. I mean, you take someone like Michael Bay, his style is clearly there and there is an audience for that, but you wouldn't, necessarily catch a lot of actors saying you know what I want to be in the next Michael Bay movie and again that's not knocking him it's just that what Wes Anderson does does for the sake of the entire story not just for the the narrative being told
1: yeah and like I said earlier about theatricality it allows performers to perform yeah even if it's even if it's voice performances his actors and actresses they get to do their job and maybe inhabit different characters than they really have a chance to in almost any other production. So I think that has to be a draw for them to be like, you know, for a Bill Murray to be a Steve Zizou, right? Or whatever. Like the difference in that character versus a character like he plays in Groundhog Day or something is very, anybody could do that, right? There's such a flamboyance to the way that some of the characters in Wes Anderson movies are, it just allows them to go nuts and really stretch and have fun and experiment. And I love that because as an audience member, it's just such a joy to watch it.
0: Well, this movie centers around, I would say two characters or three characters or one character, depending on at what point you drop into it. But we'll go ahead and settle primarily on the overall narrator which or not narrator but the overall character which is our friend Gustav who is the proprietor of the Grand Budapest at one point and That is where his identity lives as we come to find out he places this incredible value on his reputation and that of the hotel uh, Throughout most of the film at least so I wanted to ask the first question is how do you think that defines his life in? terms of the, the film itself
1: So Gustav's job as a concierge is definitely what he cares about most. And I think what I really hone in on when watching him throughout this film is just the way in which he is unapologetic about everything he does. When people call him out for or question his romancing of these older women thinking perhaps that he's blonde doing women. it blonde, blonde. blonde women yes. yeah sorry sure. gotta be blonde and yeah. why are they blonde i don't know because they always have been i love that line <laughs> so i love so that great. line it is yeah. so fantastic that's the kind of dialogue that just i eat up because i'm like okay that's like a real talk right there it's not dramatic to, dramatic that's not a word it's not made dramatic just for the sake of it to like give it this big reason no he's just no they just all happen to be blonde who does it and does do you have to have a reason for liking blondes no so i love the fact that when these things come up he says and he gives an explanation like you know listen i do it not just for me i do it for them like they're getting something out of it this is not me sweet-talking an old lady so that I can get into her will. He actually is genuinely shocked when he finds out he is in her will. He believes in providing service to others. He lives his life with the meaning of, I am providing a service, and that is what gives me fulfillment and makes me feel satisfied, whether that be on a personal level, seemingly, or in his duties as the concierge of the Grand Budapest Hotel, because he feels that in completing his tasks and making the hotel the best it could ever be, I mean, it is renowned across the world as what we are told on numerous occasions. Like he has a standard and he relentlessly holds to that standard no matter what the situation is around him. And I find that really, really appealing and really admirable.
0: Yeah, what we end up finding out about him though, is That is admirable, but there is an element of selfishness that, ha- that takes place in him as we find out more about his character, which I think is normal. I mean, I think what Anderson does here with Gustav is he reminds us that as people, even those of us who have a genuine altruistic nature or as seemingly so, there's always something about our nature that is going to benefit us, even at the very least. If it's a small, hey, that made me feel good to insert whatever. It made me feel good to give that homeless guy money or it made me feel good to help paint that house for that for that family, even though it did something for somebody else, there's always a level of selfishness that exists in all of us because that's who we are. That's human nature. It's disingenuine of us to say we're not doing anything out of the goodness of our heart because there's always some ulterior motive. And that's okay. Because I think some of that fuels that, and I think it's that relationship that he has with himself, and wanting to make the Grand Budapest amazing, and wanting to be the best proprietor he can be to make sure that everybody's needs are taken care of, that leads him to this relationship with the um, with with Zero, the door lobby boy. I keep want to say doorman, but he's a lobby boy because it's clearly marked on his hat. I was lobby. getting ready to say that. Yeah. In, I will... <laughs> In pretty Saint hard Sarah to forget. Yeah. <laughs> it's Lobby Boy. And that relationship, I think, is the most compelling part of the Grand Budapest because that's what we get from the initial narration. It's Zero talking about how he came to end up owning the Grand Budapest, but he says it has to start with a longer story. By the way, that was almost one of my connecting points was one of the handful that I had was sitting in these Turkish baths talking to the reporter and him saying it's this, I I think it's the, the way in which the, the Foley is working because they're just alone. These two guys are just hanging out in this, what once was a grand area that you probably find tons of people in and they're just sitting there quietly. And the reporter asks him, how did you come to acquire this? And he goes, ah, That's a longer story. Would you care to have dinner with me? And I'm like, oh, I love that. That's a fantastic little transition. Even though it's been done before, it just feels very genuine, very simple. It's almost as if Zero is like he's anxious to tell his story, which is –
1: Like somebody – yeah, like maybe nobody ever has asked him. And you're absolutely right. I actually forget about this. I feel like every time I rewatch the movie, I forget that it starts this way. And I felt surprised again all over when I was like, oh, my gosh, why are we starting – in the past, and oh, that's right. We're going to get to tell the story of the Grand Budapest Hotel from Zero's perspective, which I think is always important to remember that this is coming from Zero's perspective. And when we are having a character recount the past, we are seeing Gustav as experienced from zero, not Gustav as necessarily Gustav was in reality, which is always just a cool thing to keep in mind when you're watching. But yeah, that, that's an awesome start. And especially like when you see Jude Law in the movie and you think, oh, Jude Law's in this movie, of course, like, that's great. Like, and then Jude Law's gone because he's just taking notes. That's all his job is.
0: But even his appearance is a story in and of itself because the movie begins with him as an older person, as a, as a seasoned writer, talking about the fact that stories don't just come to writers. There's any great, he makes this great speech at the beginning. I don't know who he's talking to. Maybe it's a radio show, but he appears to, I, I can't tell if he's like recording something or doesn't really matter. But the point of his conversation with us or whoever is the fact that he's saying great writers don't just come up with things out of thin air. They are great observers. And, when those great observations take place, then they can begin to craft that narrative in a way that's appealing to their audience. And it's almost as if Anderson is saying, I'm about to tell you, audience, sitting in your theater seat or in your on your couch, I'm going to tell you a great story. And it's going to be a story told from my point of view about someone else. It's going to be secondhand. But Aaron, in actuality, it's thirdhand. Because Jude Law's character is telling a story about a guy who's telling a story about how He gained a hotel by telling the story of someone else from a secondhand point of view, as if you mentioned. So we have this like kind of storytelling inception thing happening. And we, you can almost make the argument that, well, how reliable is this? But as an audience, we don't care because we are all about the compellingness of the story. We are the girl that comes up and looks at the statue with all the the keys on it with our little book. We don't care that the story is true or not true. We just want a compelling story. We want the story to be interesting. And by the end of the movie, as an audience member, I feel satisfied. I feel like I've gotten a great story, even though there's probably half of it that I don't know about because of that unreliable narrator. Or in this case, three unreliable narrators. And I think it's pretty fantastic that Wes Anderson makes that distinction. But like the rest of his consistent style, he does it in a way that's very subtle he does it by changing the aspect ratio of the movie. So we're in 16 by nine standard, like 2017 uh, ratio. And then when we go backwards to Jude law as, as a young person, this young writer, it switches to, I think an older motion picture style. And then in most of the movie, then it goes to that kind of four by three ratio, not only to tell us that we're in a certain period, but to also reinforce the fact that we're talking about a story within a story within a story. And it's, it's fantastic.
1: It's brilliant. It's brilliant filmmaking. And you know, this is the kind of thing that a lot of cinephiles will hang their hat on and speak to about someone like Wes Anderson. And I, I gotta say I'm one of them at this point because with regards to him, especially and these changing of formats within a movie in order to draw you into a certain feeling as an audience member, I'm here for that. A ghost story was very similar, made by David Lowry. It's in the same thing, and it looks almost like you're watching the movie through an Instagram filter or through a Polaroid camera lens. And there's something about it that really worked for me. It's not just done to be fancy and to be different, you know, and to be highfalutin or whatever. Like, there is an intentional artistic reason to draw you into that world and i think you nailed it that that's what wes anderson is trying to do with this like story within a story it makes perfect sense
0: so the story expands beyond just gustav and it starts to involve who we later discover played uh played by that the older proprietor as a character named zero and then the movie takes an interesting turn it begins to be a story about both of them and so now we get gustav and we get zero and this relationship that they have. And what I've seen through this story is that Gustav actually goes through a transition, starting out as what we might perceive as a shallow individual or someone who cares yes about the the hotel but equally as obvious about his own personal wants and needs to being a little bit more honorable as the movie goes on, and that has to be because of his relationship with this this kid with zero and i wanted to ask you how does this influence zero on the other end and the choices he makes along the way uh in his relationship with gustav
1: well i I gotta say so i think that the pieces that we learn about gustav that are recounted to us with zero being the narrator in his eyes is what's important here These are the parts of Gustav that he remembers and that he carries with him in life. You know, even though we're best friends, I don't remember every single interaction we've ever had in our lives, right? I hone in on certain memories, certain events, the ones that left a mark, and that's what Zero is doing. And so the elements of his personality that he brings up, I think, are intentionally mentioned as... A way to show us what Zero learned from him. And one of the things that I love about the relationship is how intentional he is, Zero, in showing us that Gustav was constantly being rewarded for his good deeds without expecting necessarily to get a reward. So it happens with Tilda Swinton's you know Madame D, when she passes and he's given this painting and ultimately given the Grand Budapest because he treated her with respect. He treated her the way that she felt she needed to be treated. He provided her something that she was missing in her life and she gave him something in return and it ends up benefiting him. Also, Hinkle's, Edward Norton's surprise um I keep calling them Nazis because they're supposed to be, but his character that shows up as an inspector on a train. And there's this great scene there where Gustav is talking to zero and they come on and they don't want to take his papers. And he tells the soldiers, he says, you can't arrest him simply because he's a bloody immigrant. He hasn't done anything wrong. So he sticks up for him just because it's the right thing to do. It's what he believes in which is also very timely, by the way, watching that today and thinking about the current state of the world. But then Hinkles comes in and he tells Zero this story about how Gustav was very kind to him when he was a boy. And because of that, Gustav gets through the blockade. Because of a seemingly unrelated thing that he did years ago, he treated a boy with kindness simply because that's what the right thing to do was. That's who he was. And here it comes back to benefit him later. And I think Zero hears these things as the film goes on and learns them. And I truly believe that's carried forth with him and over his life. I also think that he's learned from Gustav about privacy to some extent. He says at one point that Gustav never told him where he came from. And Zero never asked about his family. Zero has never talked about Agatha. He's very reserved. He's very private and personal about that part of his life and it's not until the very end that we find out the details of that love and that romance and i think that that's something that maybe he emulated from gustav throughout his life was keeping himself very private and very you know hidden
0: so i think the influence in that goes out to our third level with the writer that jude law plays because at the end of the movie he says i never went back to the hotel I continued my my vacation or my travel log but the way in which there's a great shot that i absolutely adore it's at the the tail end right before we kick back to what i guess would be present day and he he's just sitting there in that 1970s furniture in that in that couch in that chair just contemplating in fact at the end um zero says are you coming up he goes no i think i'll just stay here for a while And I think he is contemplating, in the same way that Zero did with Gustav, what he's learned from this and how he understands there are certain things that I can say in my writing and there are certain things that I should keep private. And there are probably things about my life that not everybody needs to know. As a writer, you should be able to have that distinction. You can hide behind characters. You can hide behind stories and you can get back at people or you can have these different stories that that help get you therapeutically through things. But this writer, this young writer, didn't. I think he was influenced in a way like Zero was in that he understood what to write, when to write, and how to write it, which I think is what made him a great writer, not just that he was crafting a compelling story, but that he was crafting a story that didn't have to have all the answers. And for Zero, I think he also learned from Gustav about how to stand up for himself and how to fight for his own things that he needed there there are two great scenes both involving agatha and they're both the same thing that that take place um gustav is interviewing her and he's just giving her flowers and just uh, and <laughs> the, essentially, the look on his face sitting so, back there
1: in the background just he's flirting with you is he flirting with yeah.
0: you <laughs> yeah and he's like stop flirting with her and that comes back again later on when Gustav is marrying them and he's officiating their wedding and, <laughs> and he does the same thing and Zero goes, stop flirting with her. I don't believe that it's a lack of trust. I think at that point, it's genuinely him understanding that he can trust Gustav, but that he knows Gustav well enough to be able to say something like that. But he also has the ability to stand up for the woman that he loves knowing that it's purely innocent. He wouldn't have been able to do that had his relationship with Gustav not existed because of that scene that you mentioned where Gustav stood up for him. And in a way, it's consistent with the life that Gustav led. He's standing up for Zero, and Zero ends up not returning the favor by standing up for for him, but by taking that on and by showing this amount of respect, by being able to stand up to his... To his boss. And then by the end of the movie, it's become a playful thing to say, Hey, look, we are, <laughs> we are more than just boss and employee at this point. We're friends. I can say this to you. And I think that I'd like to believe that moving on in his life, Zero was able to make more of those kinds of decisions, being able to pay it forward the way that Gustav did.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, he's constantly imparting wisdom on Zero without doing it in a way that he's drawing attention to the fact that he's imparting wisdom on Zero. You know, there's some relationships we see depicted in films where it's very pointed. The character knows that that's what they're doing. They're like, I'm going to tell you as an elder that this is the way you should do things. But it comes from Gustav to Zero more so in a way of, like I said, those reveals that we talked about earlier with the good deeds coming back. I mean, there's more than the ones I mentioned. There's The fact that the tall, scar-faced guy in the prison, right, who is seemingly the scary guy, and Gustav is like, do you want some food? Because I got some food. It's good food. And he finally comes and he eats it. What happens? Later, that same guy is there and breaks the neck of the person trying to rat Gustav out when they're going to escape. He protects him. Not because he was asked to, but because Gustav gave him some good food and- wasn't afraid of him and engaged with him. And then there's a moment where he's talking to Zero as well about Serge. Um, I think he's asked about the fact that Serge betrayed him. And he says, I'm not angry with Serge. You can't blame someone for their basic lack of moral fiber. He's a frightened little yellow-bellied coward. It's not his fault, is it? That was fascinating to me. Because to me, that's like imparting that wisdom on him without even necessarily kind of intentionally doing it. He's just answering a question about how he feels, and he's saying, "Look, I understand." And he's it's it's about empathy. He's under he's having empathy for Serge and the situation that Serge was put in, and he's saying, "Not everyone is going to live with the same standards that I live with, and that that's okay, and that I'm not going to treat them different because of that." and he de- Zero definitely takes that with him in life. And of course, it also shows itself in a the most fun way, I think, which is the whole society of the cross keys, which is awesome. Like, one of the most fun things in a Wes Anderson movie ever when they start picking up the phones and then you get the fun little Bill Murray cameo and it's just this spy network, essentially, underground coming together to protect one of their own. Fun fact, so the Navy has... Uh, service ratings, right? We have little badges um, for that define what our job is in the Navy. And for a yeoman it's crossed quills because I was in administration. Well, our storekeeper rating is cross keys. Um, we have one that's, it, it looks very similar to the way that it looks in the movie. And it just, I couldn't help but think I was like, man, that looks like, you know, military rating badges is what these guys have. And it gives a lot more weight to the scene at the beginning of the movie the tribute scene right with all the keys and stuff when you understand like what really that meant that there's this whole world of concierges that take their job that seriously like can you believe that can you imagine all the people like what if there's bankers patrick people we interact with every day what if there's a a society of cross dollar bills or something and like bankers that truly believe they're providing a service you know because your friendly neighborhood bank it's an interesting thing to think about uh and it is it's a behind the scenes world that could exist that we don't know about.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and um, we try not to go back to points that we've already made, but something you, you've talked through is something I want to really bring up something about Gustav. I genuinely think that he represents that person who sees no ill will in people. Not fault, because obviously he sees fault in people. um, But he doesn't see it as a flaw that's going to ruin the world. It's like, it's not that person's fault. He genuinely sees the best in people. And he starts from a palette of purity as opposed to a palette of judgment or prejudice or racism. And I think that... What's interesting about him is that when we think about a person like that, when we think about that character, person, individual, however you want to talk about him, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to use Superman as an example. We see a guy, and I'm not doing this intentionally to, to make you laugh. This is just kind of what came to me. We see a character that Gustav represents who genuinely sees that people are hurting and they need to be rescued. I don't think he sees people that way I think that like the Superman character he sees the best in people and wants to see redemption from those people and I think what Gustav represents is that person who starts from a place where he says you know what I'm gonna believe the best about this person until he proves me wrong or until she proves me wrong what's interesting about that though is that we could see that pure character and what Wes Anderson does is Typically, if you create a pure character like that, they just live and they say, my work here is done. No, I don't need this kind of reward. You know, I'm, I'm one of the three amigos. You know, we don't need that. We do things for the good of mankind. Nope. Gustav is perfectly okay owning a hotel because of his good deeds. He's perfectly okay with getting out of being arrested because of his good deeds. He's fully willing to accept every good thing that comes from that. And I think what Wes Anderson is saying, he's going, look, live your life seeing the best in people and reap the rewards willingly because good things can happen and own that. Don't feel guilty about the fact that good things are happening because of the fact that you're seeing the best in people. He may not be saying that. I'd like to believe the best about Wes Anderson that he's saying that.
1: You're taking I think, the Gustav approach.
0: I'm taking – yeah. You know – be, be the Gustav to someone, right? Maybe be the be Gustav you
1: want to see in the world. Yeah.
0: Be, be the Gustav the city needs, not necessarily what they're asking for, right? <laughs> <laughs> we can do this for, oh man, somebody with great Photoshop skills needs to start making
1: these famous <laughs> quotes. Okay, anyway.
0: But the truth is, I think there's some real optimism that Anderson is articulating through this character. And yes, it comes from experience. It comes from him. What I think is growing is, from his relationship with zero but genuinely i think that he sees this contentment in his life and we see that contentment in his life where he is genuinely happy and in some ways like even when he's in the prison he never seems to feel like this is all there is oh man i need to get out but when the opportunity arises that he can escape he will and it's it's it just blows my mind to see a character like that who's willing to Be altruistic, but be completely unencumbered to take the benefits of that.
1: It's brought to him as an option, not something he seeks out. Did you finally see why I was gushing over the comparison to Paddington 2 at this point? Yes, and not only the visual look, but especially the whole prison sequence and the way everything goes down with the way he's accused falsely and for stealing something he didn't steal. Essentially, you know what I mean? Like the way the breakout happens, the same type of characters he meets. Mm -hmm. It's it's pretty awesome, and it has a lot of. It's really fun if you go back and watch Paddington Two now. You'll you'll absolutely be you're like oh my gosh, like
0: this is such an homage. Yes, Um, the Wes Anderson Gustav treatment right
1: there. (laughs) It it really is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I I love their relationship. I think it's a, a lot of fun. And it, also, did you catch the Lucas Hodges cameo? I don't think it's a cameo, I guess, because so this is Lucas Hodges before his breakout in Manchester by the sea. He is in this film as the boy who provides a motorcycle to Defoe. No, I didn't catch that. It's like so quick. He's like kinda mean boy and he's like, You would
0: date my motorcycle. And Defoe takes the motorcycle. Yeah. Maybe I didn't notice him because he wasn't really sad. Yeah. He was just (laughs) (laughs) sad. Defoe's so good in this too, by the way. I mean, he's good in everything. But like when you see him
1: show up, that scene um, where they punch each other. Back and forth so, so is one of my favorite moments in the entire movie.
0: I just so I laugh out loud hard every it's, single time. Oh, and I, and I I think Edward Norton in this is pretty fantastic. I love the fact that he hasn't. He's not even trying to do a German yeah. accent. It's just it's all straight up American. It's the
1: point. Yes, right. And So is Owen Wilson. Like when Owen Wilson shows up at the end as the concierge <laughs> in the in the ger- in the German version of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like, why of all people is the most white <laughs> blonde? blue-eyed dude it's it's got to be intentional like, because why not right and because owen wilson has to be in his movie somewhere so it's like it's like it, it's either intentionally pl- making a play on the fact that he is very white blonde and blue-eyed or he's just like well i was i had to put owen somewhere and i needed to throw him in <laughs> so,
0: I, I think it's i mean i think it's i think it's I think it's, I think it's more intentional than that because of the fact that look at Zero. Zero is clearly a foreigner Yes. And his adult version is clearly not quite from the same country. Yeah. I, of course, I could be completely ethnocentric and being like, oh, I didn't notice that. But I, I saw a distinction between adult zero and, and young zero in terms of their cultural distance. If, I, if I'm wrong, then I, I sincerely apologize. But um, I think that that's the fun thing about Wes Anderson's narrative is that it's not that he's not taking things serious, seriously. It's just that he understands that those aren't the point. The point is not the war that's going on or just the war that's going on. The point is not a, the the mystery or the escape from jail. It's all those things wrapped into a fun movie experience and one that is memorable and enjoyable every time you watch it.
1: Yeah, it is. And the other thing I want to mention though, just before I guess if we're going to move on is that I enjoy the quiet background reveal of the love story between Zero and Agatha so much. First of all, Sorcerer Ronin is incredible in everything she's in, and so there's that. But there's a couple things in a couple scenes where they're just, there's. it's so amazing how this movie has these powerful emotional moments. They're very fleeting, and they're very quick, and they're not drawn a lot of attention to. But at one point, Zero says, I never speak of Agatha because at the thought of her name, I lose control of my emotions. It was almost my connecting point, like one sentence because I was like, dude, I know the feeling, bro, right? I get it. And I think a lot of people get it. The feeling of, well, this is there's a reason I haven't talked about this. It's because I can't handle talking about it, even after all of these years. And, you know, he reiterates some of that when he's telling Jude Law's writer at the end, you know, Jude's, Oh, you know, he's basing on the story. He's like, oh, so you're keeping the Grand Budapest essentially as tribute to Gustav. And he's like, no. He's like, the hotel I keep for Agatha because we were happy here for a little while. And it's it's like the thing that he can connect with her and those memories on. It's the way that he can keep her alive at the best way, not what he remembers. You know, when... She's killed soon after they're married and they have this son. It's, it's a tragic. It's just, a, it's like, it's such a quick line, you know, Agatha and Zero or her son are, were killed by a disease. And basically he alludes to the plague, uh, another, another real life thing that took millions of lives and how it affected him and changed the course of his life. But the hotel reminds him of the moments they had that were great when she was pure and lovely because of that.
0: Well, and that goes back to when we see from it's a director's choice not to make that the point. I mean, he could have lingered on it. And I want to say it was probably a 10-second, 12-second speech because he talked about they died. It's funny, a disease that today could be cured in a week just wasn't that way. And then they moved on. It wasn't, and I don't think Wes Anderson did that unintentionally. I think a lot of the shots that he does, either for comic relief that are kind of not shock and awe, but are like, wait, did that just happen the same way? He's like that with these real tender moments. He lingers on shots that he thinks are the most valuable or what he thinks will add the most impactful punch. And I don't think he believed that that line was unnecessary or just the throwaway. I think that he was representing an element of grief because as, as you mentioned, adult zero said, I can't think about her without getting emotional. And so for Anderson, I think it was a great directional step for him to say what he said, think about it for a second and then move on because that's how he deals with it. But then when he talks about the hotel, there is tracking shots, there's pictures of the hotel as he's telling that story. And it feels like a longer kind of exhale of emotion where he says, you know what, this is where we were happy. And I leave, I, I I keep the hotel for her and maybe it's the same duration in terms of seconds, but it felt longer. It felt like we lived in that moment longer than we lived in his quick telling of how she and their family died. And it's interesting that he doesn't mention their son or their child that still goes back to her. It's not that he doesn't care, but it's because this is the story about him and Agatha not just about, not about their family necessarily. If that were the case, then we'd hear more about them. But it goes back to him being very reserved and reserved for a reason.
1: And he spent a lot more time with Agatha. Absolutely. Than, fortunately, their young son, their yeah. son died young, very young, he says. And, you know, and Agatha has a connection to Gustav and the story with Gustav and the one he's retelling as well. So I think that's part of it. But I love the I love the distinction you just made where you're right. They're, are almost the same amount of words in a sentence, but it can be lingered on in a different way mm-hmm. for a different
0: impact. Right. And his love for Agatha is definitely distinguished from Gustav's love for his job, as we kind of alluded to. I feel like both provide purpose, but they they cause Gustav and Zero to to make different choices as their lives go on. Do you gravitate towards one or the other? It sounds like obviously you gravitate more towards zero because you understand that a little bit more. But is there anything about either one that that stands out to you in terms of the choices they made and that drive behind those choices?
1: Well, I yeah, I think I personally gravitate toward it simply because I feel it's relatable to me, mm-hmm. to more to make choices in life based on love than career. That's just. What I've done,
0: mm-hmm. essentially.
1: Um, but I think that it is a wonderful juxtaposition. And it's great to see two characters that have those different things that are pushing them forward. They're different purposes in their life. But yet they're working together, accomplishing things at the same place. They are still doing the best they can at the same job. And no, I don't think either one is a mistake. I think it is a very personal decision. Gustav is never shown to have a wife or family. It's it's not talked about. He's married to his job. He's that guy. And there's historically a problem with our culture in that it used to – I think it's starting to change. But we used to shame women and families who didn't have kids. I remember growing up, my aunt and uncle never had kids. They were two teachers, mind you, who spent their entire lives – teaching middle school kids choir and band and such, but yet they never wanted kids of their own. And I remember hearing stories from them, even from within my, my own family, like, come on, you know, Pam and David, when are you guys going to have babies? Like you're waiting, you know, you're missing, your missing the time. Like the point of life is to procreate, but that's not the case for everybody. And I think what's most important is realizing what gives you value and what gives what fulfills your purpose as a person and then pouring yourself into that in a positive way and so i think it's fine that gustav is pouring himself into his work and he's doing it at the highest most reputable level possible and i think it's fine if zero does his job in a stand-up way because he should but it's all as a means to Further his relationship and ability to provide for eventually a wife and and Agatha, who he loves, and I and I think totally fine, and I love seeing it this way because it Anderson doesn't vilify either decision in any way at all. In fact, he shines a light on both being completely reasonable, in my
0: opinion. Well, and the interesting thing about all of that is the fact that the Grand Budapest Hotel is at the center of this. It's owned by both of these guys, but for completely different reasons. One as a tribute to himself and what he's accomplished, his career, as an extension of his successful career. The other to his late wife and the love that they had. And by the end of the movie, what we get, going back to near the beginning, Jude Laws, the writer is describing how the Grand Budapest was, is not what it once was, as he describes it. It's very dilapidated. It's kind of in its twilight years but as we get to know zero and why he keeps it around to me and i think this is why i like that last shot before we move forward in time with jude law sitting on that real just 70s furniture there's a beauty to it and because i've gotten so used to wes anderson's directorial his cinematography i want to linger on those shots. I want to linger on what I'm seeing a little bit longer because I don't want to leave the Budapest. I don't want to leave that hotel because it's beautiful to me. It's beautiful because I understand why it's still around. It's not that it's popular. It's not that it makes a lot of money to things that are very much not true. It is around because it can be. And because for one person, it can provide joy to that person and really to anybody else who goes through that thing. For Jude Law, I think he found that for a minute.
1: Yeah. And it also shows that the thing itself is not necessarily the provider. It's what the people working in the thing use it as. The the hotel itself is essentially like a tool, right? Because Mm -hmm. the Nazis use it and occupy it. And it's not a bastion of goodness, you know, in those days. But when there is a concierge there that cares about it, when there are Staff that make amazing like seven course meals complete with a dessert, mind you, that looks a whole awful lot alike, like the cupcakes at Mendel's by the way, I noticed <laughs> obviously a detail that was made on purpose, but I think that it shows you that you know the Grand Budapest is an institution and it can be used for positive it can use used for negative, and it that's dependent upon the people that care about it and the people that run it
0: and it will always be memorable to anyone who owns it or to the characters that we have seen who own it. And, and that, that makes it timeless in a lot of ways, which I think Wes Anderson has done a great job at reminding us by the end of the movie. Well, connecting point time, I think, unless you have anything else, Um, I'm going to go ahead and cheat with the notes and say, we both had the same one, which is pretty fantastic. So Aaron, why don't you lead in this section for us?
1: Well, our joint connecting point is the moment where Gustav has escaped the prison and is reunited with zero and we're just going to play the audio for you to remind you if you haven't seen the film in a while. It's a really, really good scene with some great dialogue. So we'll do that first.
2: Which way to the safe house? Uh, I couldn't find one. No safe house? Really? We're completely on our own out here. I'm afraid so. I, I asked around, but... I understand. Too risky. We'll just have to wing it, I suppose. Let's put on our disguises. We're wearing them. No, no we're not. We said false whiskers and fake noses and so on. You didn't bring any. I thought you were growing one and it wouldn't it wouldn't look realistic, would it? No, when done properly, they're perfectly convincing, but I I, I take your point, so be it. Uh, give give me a few squirts of leather panache, please, will you? Well can I can I not get a squirt, even? I forgot the leather panache. Honestly, you forgot the Leather panache? I don't believe it. mean, you how could you? I've been in jail, Zero. Do you understand how humiliating this is? I, I smell. that's just marvellous, isn't it? I suppose this is to be expected back in... (laughs) Where do you come from again? Axelim al-Jabat. Precisely. I suppose this is to be expected back in -in Axelim al-Jabat, where one's prized possessions are a stack of filthy carpets and a starving goat, and one sleeps behind a tent flap and survives on wild dates and scarabs. But it's not how I trained you. What on God's earth possessed you to leave the homeland where you very obviously belong and travel unspeakable distances to become a penniless immigrant in a refined, highly cultivated society that, quite frankly, could have gotten along very well without you? The war. Say again? Well, you see, my father was murdered, and the rest of my family were executed by firing squad. Our village was burned to the ground, and those who managed to survive were forced to flee. I left because of the war. I see, so you're, you're actually really more of a, a refugee in that sense? Truly. Well, I suppose I'd better take back everything I just said. What a bloody idiot I am. Pathetic fool. Goddamn selfish bastard. This is disgraceful, and it's beneath the standards of the Grand Budapest. I apologize on behalf of the hotel. It's not your fault, Monsieur Gustave. You were just upset I forgot to... Don't make excuses for me. I owe you my life. You are my dear friend and protégé, and I'm very proud of you. You must know that. I'm so sorry, Zero. We're brothers. Okay, man, so
1: I absolutely love this. This is like the one time in the movie I feel like it slows down for an extended period of time. And it's like two or three minutes. (laughs) That's the extended period of time. But there's so much here. And it. You know, the character of Gustav has been building to this. I feel like, you know, it's very understandable that he would explode to an extent. And even his explosion, his tirade is somewhat mild by the standards that we're used to seeing in films and in real life with people who get upset about things. But it starts off, you know, he asks very calmly, like, okay, are we ready to go to the safe house? But there is no safe house. And okay, I understand, no problem. Uh, that was probably tough, but you brought the disguises, right? I'm like, no, I, th- I thought we had that covered already. Didn't do that either. And he's like, okay, all right. I'm gonna let that go. Can I just get a little squirt of l'air de Panache? Patrick's one more takeaway. And he's like, I didn't bring your perfume. And he loses it, right? He launches into this awful abusive tirade where he calls zero out and and it tells him he's worthless tells him he he doesn't have value that he's a mistake he shouldn't have been you know working with him all because of seemingly him not bringing a perfume right it's this slew of insults and it's really it's all out of, of frustration Because to to Gustav, that perfume is symbolic of, it's almost like putting on a mask. No matter how dirty he is, no matter what he's been through, if he's got Laird Panache on, then he is retaining a slight amount of the refinement that and the standard that he holds himself to. And I think in this moment, he's feeling like he is at his lowest point and he's directing it all at zero. But out of this comes such a great moment because he asks zero about how he got here and, and you know zero says very nonchalantly mind you well my father was murdered and the rest of my family were executed by firing squad our village was burned to the ground and those who managed to survive were forced to flee i left because of war and gustav instantly when he responds he says, i see so you're actually really more of a refugee in that sense Zero says, truly, says, well, I suppose I'd better take everything I just said back. What a bloody idiot I am. This is beneath the standard of the Grand Budapest. Again, measuring himself by how he does his job. And it is an emotionally powerful scene. Um, It ends with them... Zero simply making an affirmation of their relationship going forward that I think plays out later and you were going to talk about. But I I just love the way Anderson allows these characters to grow to this moment and the way that it shifts their relationship from boss and employee into a new level of respect, a new level of understanding for one of another. And I think this is the first time that Zero teaches Gustav something. About maybe judging people.
0: Absolutely. And the exclamation point of all this is what I think Zero learns from Gustav. And it's about, again, standing up for himself. But the line that really cinched it for me is what finishes the conversation. He says, we are brothers. And he hugs him. And there's so much impact with that statement. Because it says, I'm not just your employee anymore. I'm now your equal. We are now equally a part of each other's lives, equally responsible for one another, and you can know that I have your back and that you have mine and that you don't have to be afraid and that I get what you're getting at. And having that kind of line to finish off a conversation like that really reminds me that there's a mutual understanding that exists between the two of them. And to me, that, was, that moment was the biggest growth spurt for both of them. For Zero being able to be more affirming and more uh more confident in what he's saying and how he's acting and gustav for the first time we see again from zero's point of view a sincere apologetic oh my gosh i made a mistake yes under the umbrella of the grand budapest standards but seeing him own that and say i was wrong That's a big deal because we've up to that point we've not seen that we've not seen an apologetic person we've seen an altruistic person who reaps the benefits of those things but having that moment right there at the end and having them hug that was beautiful I mean hugs are great you know brothers don't shake hands brothers got a hug as Tommy Boy would say you know and get out
1: bitches sorry
0: I was was I'm sorry it was my Oh
1: my God. you know what that show that show on hbo <laughs> i know oh. what's the show on hbo that is about all of the actor and I like don't the, know the, the guy friends but that's like the whole like thing is hug it out anyway I, I, I thought
0: you said only i didn't hear a hug i just heard get out <laughs> no hug it out okay yeah people cool. I, I
1: can't remember they, they made a movie about it too Earth, and Earth. the guy played aquaman in the series i love the series now i can't think of what it's called <laughs> Anyway, anyway, carry on. No, I'm, totally I'm, I'm done
0: with that now. <laughs> that pretty much since it. So that's my connecting point, too.
1: Mine, too. And I just want to end with um the fact that it plays itself out later. Because Anderson, in details, man, it's all in the details. The fact that it's the lack of the lair to the panache that sets him off. And afterwards, they're traveling in the train with Bill Murray. <laughs> and the fact that he just so casually, you know, Bill Murray brings it, he uses it, and then... He offers it to zero the look on zero's face, the understanding of like, this is a moment that has changed. Mm-hmm. Like I am now being offered this because our relationship is different. Yeah. And I think it's 100% actuated at the very end because the story is recounting what Agatha says to Gustav and zero in that poem. And she says, when's whence came these two radiant celestial brothers united for an instant as they crossed the stratosphere of our starry window One from the East and one from the West. And is Wes Anderson intending to make commentary on real world here on how we should treat each other? People of different cultures, people of different color, people who may have suffered extreme atrocities of war and fled them. And yet we don't know because they just are here just wanting to do a job and live a life and find love from a young girl who is really good at baking cupcakes, maybe. And it's something that I think is really important for us to all think about. So I love how it all kind of wraps up and is attached to that scene.
0: Me too. And I love how this show wraps up because we are now at the end of this episode of Feel and Film. Uh, We're going to take a week off from FF Plus this week so Aaron can enjoy some time with his family while he's on vacation. But we will be back next week with week three of Director Battle Month covering No Country for Old Men. Week four voting is going on now, so if you are not part of the Facebook group, be sure to join and be part of our final selection process, as well as all the great conversation that goes on in there. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening.